Uh, today's scripture reading is taken from two passages. I'm going to read first from Ezekiel 2, uh, verses 1 to 5. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. The second passage is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, sorry, chapter 2, verses 2 to 10. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of God. Good morning. Need my tea this morning, so I've got to get set up properly. Well, it's good to be back with you. Um, don't want you to think your pastors are dropping like flies. <laughs> Most are gone for a good reason, and yeah, thank you for praying for me while I recovered from a cold. I want to uh, wish you a happy Mother's Day. I know for myself, Mother's Day is kind of a complicated day, um, a day that used to bring a lot of grief in my family, and I, I recognize that. So um, this morning's message, I think it relates to mothers, uh, but it's definitely a message for everyone, and probably more especially for those who have um, experienced complicated feelings, whether around Mother's Day um, or just any type of grief. There's this phrase that we love to say, nobody's perfect, or as my husband likes to say, nobody's nerfect. 
And I hear this so often and I wonder, why do we say this? We know this, why do we have to actually verbalize it so often? I think we generally understand about ourselves that we're not perfect. Maybe we look at other people and think they have it all together. They're so perfect. But deep down, we must know that no one has it all together. Everyone struggles with something, and perfection is beyond reach. Some of us might have that internal push toward perfection. That's the right answer in a job interview, right? When they ask you, what is your weakness? I used to say that, well, I'm a perfectionist. Of course, then I read about perfectionism and that it's actually something that develops out of shame. And I was like, oh, I should probably look into that a little bit more and stop using it as a, a brag. For the rest of us, if we don't have that internal pressure, we might feel it from the outside. I did a quick Google, Google search to see, um, you know, if we're looking at, at being perfect, what, what is out there? What is the world trying to sell us? And I found a few magazines um, that, that gave, us, gave us that draw for perfection. It was pretty easy to find things to come up, and they said things like, here's how to get the perfect body, um, or for men, the perfect shape. Apparently, men want to look like a Dorito. Um, <laughs> that's the perfect, perfect shape for them. How to have the perfect skin. How to have the perfect wedding. Something that people pay thousands of dollars for, right? That perfect wedding. How to be the perfect woman. I wanted to look at what was out there for parents. Um, so I did another search and I found two. One um, is for the perfect parent, but it's a picture of a woman, as you can see. And it has kind of a list around her of all the things that she should do to be perfect. And I want to say that I found this on someone's website who is hating on the picture, um, because I think anytime someone tells a woman how to be a perfect mom, they will be met with rage um, and other things. But it said the perfect parent or mom always keeps an immaculate house, uses 100% cotton diapers, reads all the right books, makes organic baby food, and sews all the children's Halloween costumes. It didn't seem like there was anything for the perfect dad except how to have um, the perfect Sunday afternoon, which involves the couch and football and a nap. I think maybe dads have more reachable goals than, than moms do. <laughs> In honor of Mother's Day, I thought I would uh, shout out to my mom and share a picture with you <laughs> from my childhood because my mom did sew our clothes and uh, there were five of us and she liked to put us in matching outfits. Uh, you can see the top <laughs> pictures are just when there were girls and then my brother came along and he also got in on the matching outfits. Um, love, he would love that I'm showing that <laughs> this morning. <laughs> Uh, so that is, that is perfection <laughs> for you. That's, that's what it looks like. As we get into this, this idea, I want to, to take a moment. Let's come before God and, and prepare our hearts. God, you are so good. 
You have given us so much, and God, we fail to see it. We fail to see the birds um, singing sweetly in the trees and, and the wonder that is around us because we are so distracted. So as we come before you this morning, I ask that you would quiet our hearts and open our minds to your spirit. God, meet us where we are and give us the words we need to hear this morning. Amen. Perfection is appealing. It's appealing to think I can have the perfect house or the perfect body, the perfect Sunday afternoon. The only problem with this pursuit of perfection is that the way the world sells it to us, it only benefits the individual. It's something that will better my life, but often at the expense of those around me. It's a pursuit that is really self-indulgent. And the Bible doesn't sell us self-indulgence. It doesn't sell us self-help, even. What it offers us is this transforming and healing relationship. Something that will benefit us, yes, as individuals, but also the community around us, the people around us. So this morning, we're going to consider this biblical concept of perfection, of power. And we're going to be looking at weakness. I got this topic, and I thought, oh, no. (laughs) The last time I spoke, I was talking about humanity and death. And it was Good Friday, so appropriate. But I was like, everyone's going to think I'm a real downer, that I'm always talking about these, these things that are hard to talk about. I'm not a downer, I I am a joyful person. But I do think I have an understanding of suffering. I have an understanding of pain and grief. I have an understanding of prayer that goes unanswered. And so this is a message that is for those of you who can relate to that. For those of you who have wondered, why does God allow suffering to happen? It's a message for those of you who have asked something of God and have received the answer that you didn't want or no answer at all. And it's a message for those that experience physical pain or mental pain or spiritual suffering that doesn't go away. And if that's not you, if you can't relate to that, then I know that there are people in your life who can. And so this is a message for you too. The passage that Anita read for us in 2 Corinthians 12, it's a letter that Paul wrote. And he wrote it as a response when he was facing opposition to his leadership in the church. We read a couple chapters back in 2 Corinthians 10, that his critics are saying this about him. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. It's harsh. 
And so Paul responds to them through this letter. He responds to this insult. And he starts off by saying, I know of a man who had a vision, who was caught up into the heavens and saw and heard wondrous things. Now this, I know a man, is kind of our modern day equivalent of saying, well, it happened to a friend of a friend of mine. He's talking about himself. But he doesn't want to boast. So he says, I could boast about this awesome thing that happened to my friend, but I won't. Instead, I will boast about my weakness. What that weakness is, we don't actually know. Paul calls it a thorn in his flesh. The word can be translated to a stake, a stake in the flesh, something that is physically painful, something that prevents him from the enjoyment of life. You know, it goes away, but it always comes back. It's recurring, and he just can't shake this thorn. Now, we don't know what it is. Was it a disease? Was it depression? My favorite interpretation is those commentators that say, oh, it was probably a woman. <laughs> but the most accepted conclusion that we read is that it was most likely epilepsy, something that would take him out every now and then that would have been painful for him and that wouldn't prevent him from, from working and traveling and preaching until it did, and then he would have to stop everything. I think the reason it's not named is that we don't need to know. And so that we can relate to whatever this thorn is. Because we can't all relate to epilepsy, but we can all relate to having something that ails us, something that doesn't go away. A thorn in our flesh. Having something that plagues us and humbles us. This is where Paul was at. He was struggling with his weakness, with his imperfection. And yet, God used him. Now, this is a very familiar story in the Bible. When we read the Bible, we don't read about perfect people who presented themselves to God and God used and things were great. I can think of maybe two examples of that. Samson and Saul, and it didn't really work out well for them, right? They were both killed in the end of their own, their own pride. More often, we hear stories about people who were weak, who were unimpressive, who didn't speak very well, and yet God said, you, I'm going to use you. And I'm not going to spend a long time talking about Ezekiel, but I did want that passage read because I love the way it's set up. Ezekiel, who is a prophet of God, and we read about his calling. And God addresses Ezekiel. He says, son of man, or another way of saying that is human. He has to start by saying, human, get up. Have you ever been in that place? You're not walking along in your faith. You're not even crawling. You're down on the ground. And God has to say, human, get up. He says this to Ezekiel, and he says, I have a job for you. I want you to speak to these people. They might not listen to you. 
It might turn out very badly for you, but I want you to do this anyway. It's not an appealing job offer, is it? <laughs> but this is life in service to Christ. This is what it looks like, that God uses us in our weakness and tells us to do a job that won't yield worldly rewards, it won't yield power, but it's what we're called to do. A few weeks ago, we read about Jesus praying in the garden. And he had that moment of being down on the ground, and he's praying, God, take this cup away from me. I don't want this death. I don't want this end. And God says, no. God says, you're going to the cross. And in that cross, in that ultimate display of human weakness, God's power is revealed in a way it has never been revealed before. And that's why the cross, something that was used to kill, has become a symbol to us of hope and new life, a symbol of power. And Paul knew this. He knew about the cross, and he knew that even though he was pleading with God to relieve him of his pain, God might not answer him the way he wanted to be answered. And the answer that comes back is this. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I hear that, and I think that is probably one of the most beautiful phrases spoken in the Bible. It's a promise of perfection, but not in the way we think of perfection. It's not perfection for our bodies. It's the perfection of the power of God. So I want to stay with that verse for a few minutes. I want to break it down a little bit. The first part says, my grace is sufficient for you. Well, what is God's grace? Now, grace is something that cannot be earned, something that is not deserved. Grace is God's favor and love being poured out on his people. Has anyone ever heard that phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle? We need to stop saying that. Because <laughs> it's not true. God does give us more than we can handle, or life gives us more than we can handle. There will be things that happen to us that we cannot handle. And that's the point where when we stop handling it, that's when grace comes in. That's what we believe, that God's grace will come in, and that it is enough. It is at that point that we finally let go, that we are down, that God's grace begins to pour out. It's not about keeping calm and carrying on. It's not about looking on the bright side. It's about grace. And grace is how we experience God in real time, in real life. So that's the first part of that phrase. The next part is, my power, God's power, is made perfect in weakness. 
What is God's power? How often do we pause to think about the power of God? No, God has the power to speak life into being. It was through his words that the world came into existence. The galaxies, the sun, the moon, our planet, trees, flowers. Animals. We're really into Disney nature at my house right now. I mean, we've been watching you know, shows about polar bears and, and all these amazing animals. This came from God's imagination. He spoke, and his words gave substance to what was in his mind. It's amazing. And it's quite a contrast to the power dynamics that we see at work in the world, the power that we see around us. The way that it often goes is that when humans have power, they use it to prey on the weak. They use it to take away from those who are vulnerable. They use it to better their own lot at the expense of others. But the power of God isn't like that. The power of God that was displayed on the cross brings justice to all. It brings hope and it brings healing. This is power that is abundant and infinite and available to us. And I think that's the part that really blows my mind, that God has made his power through his spirit available to us. And we need the spirit, the spirit who helps us in our weakness as Victoria prayed, the spirit who prays for us with wordless groans. And through our weakness, God's power is made perfect. What if that was our goal and our longing? What if our prayer was, God, make your power perfected in my weakness? I can't imagine what that would look like. But Paul helps us see how we can get there through his example and through the example of Jesus in the garden. You know, Jesus is praying for this cup to be removed, but his prayer doesn't end there. It ends with, not my will, but yours be done. And Paul is praying for God to take away this thorn. Paul wants this, this stake to be removed from his side. Jesus doesn't want the stakes to be put in his hands. And I think we need to acknowledge that this is a natural human response to pain. As much as we know that God's power is perfected in our weakness, we're not going to start praying for weakness. We're not going to be praying to be brought low. We want to avoid pain. And we want that because of how we were made. We live in a world that is cursed, and because of that, we're under this power of sin that brings about disease and weakness and all these awful things. And we know deep within us that we were made for more than that. We know that we were made for a full life, for health in body and mind and spirit. We know that. And we have this longing for peace, this longing for wholeness inside of us 
So of course we should be praying for more. We should be praying for healing and for peace and for all the wrong that we see around us to disappear and be replaced by God's justice. When we're sick, we want God to heal us. When we're suffering, we want God to replace that suffering with joy. And when our desires are unfulfilled, we ask God to fulfill this desire that I have. This is good and right to pray these prayers. We just can't end there. We finish with, not my will, but yours be done. This is a place of surrender, a place where we acknowledge that we are weak. We acknowledge that things are not the way we want them to be. And then we surrender. And we do this because none of us are out here to be spiritual superheroes. Our goal is not to be awesome at Christianity. Our goal is to learn to lean on and depend on God. And God doesn't want to replace our weakness with strength. Instead, what he wants to do is transform it into his glory. So if we think about that for a minute, if we think about how the grace of God is revealed in our weakness, what does that mean for our lives? Could it be that the closer we are to death, the closer we are to God? That the more pain we suffer, the more we have the ability to experience God? Do we really take it seriously when we read Matthew 5 where it says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do we believe that? I have a hard time with it. And I know when we talk about our blessings, we tend to talk about our abundance. Just look up hashtag so blessed on Facebook. <laughs> See pictures of happy people, with wonderful lives, probably not wanting to show their weakness. But this is what God says. He points to those places where we are lacking and where we are weak, and he says this, this is the place where I will reveal myself. This is where you will find me. This is where you are blessed. I know the places where I lack. I know my own weakness. And I struggle with this idea. I've never had a chronic sickness. I spent two weeks with a cold and I was so demoralized and praying, God, heal me. I want to be better. I want to get back to work and write about weakness. Just make me whole. <laughs> I struggle with the reality of my own humanity. And so I can't imagine what that would be like for people who have chronic pain. I don't want to make light of that struggle. 
Just know that if that is you, that I will join you in praying for your healing, praying for your deliverance, and praying that God's will will be done in your life. Bruce and I, we just celebrated our ninth anniversary. Every year, I get a little bit more, um, how do I put this, forgiving of him. (laughs) Apparently, May 4th is, um, happy birthday, Scott, May 4th, great day. But there's something else that happens on May 4th, people who like a certain galactic film, they celebrate on that day. And so I didn't know that when I chose the wedding date. And uh, Bruce's friends knew that. And they thought it would be awesome to, you know, dress up and give us lightsabers as a gift. So anyway, every year my regret over that diminishes a little bit because people remember the anniversary and, you know, wish us well. It's very nice. Anyway, it's nothing to do with what I'm saying. Um, A few years ago, we wanted to celebrate our anniversary, and so we went to uh, the Niagara area, we went out to the falls, and we walked around um, the little towns around there. And on the Sunday morning, we went to this uh, church, this little Presbyterian church um, that was in a tiny town, but it was where Bruce's parents had been married decades before, and we just wanted to go and, and visit it. So we went to their service, and uh, heard, yeah, great, great worship, heard the pastor speak, um, a young guy, and it was just a really wonderful community. But as the pastor was speaking, I was like, there's something about him, and I don't know what it is, but there's just something that is, is different. And as he finished speaking, uh, he went to get down off the stage, and someone came up, and they held out their arm, and they helped him down. And I realized, oh, he's blind, like, can't see at all. And they led him to the back, and and we all went down to the basement of this church, and we had coffee hour and got to chat with people, and we got to chat with him. And he was saying he was relatively new to the church. He had been there a year, maybe, and um, he brought up, yeah, the fact that he was blind. And he said, you know, I didn't know that I could do this job, so in my interview, I had to to let them know that I will need the congregation to help me. I have lots of doctor's appointments and I don't drive. People will have to drive me to these appointments. I'll need to be driven to the office every day. I'll need people to help me do daily tasks, especially in this small town where not everything was accessible to him. And the church said yes, and they banded around their pastor and loved him in his weakness. I think it probably took a lot for him (laughs) to be able to to do that, to ask for that help. But at the same time, he didn't have a choice. If he wants to function, he needs his community. And as I think about God being glorified through our weakness, I think that's a really great practical example of what it looks like. The church was unified around this pastor's weakness. And I want to say, too, what the world would call a weakness. But it was something that really brought the church together and something that, for me, as an outsider walking into this tiny church, I could feel that unity and that warmth and that love from the congregation. This is God's power at work through the weakness of his people. 
Our series that we're in is called Awestruck. We're focusing on the wonder and the mysteries of God. I love the, the flowers. They're gorgeous. Reminds me a little bit of uh, grade 12 when I was a munchkin in a musical production of The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> but flowers just speak to me so much of God's beauty, of God's wonder, of his imagination that brought forth color and, and scent and all these wonderful things that are all around us and that we walk by without stopping to praise him for every day. And I don't fully understand what I'm talking about. I want to say that. I don't fully understand how God transforms our weaknesses into his glory. I don't fully understand God's amazing grace. But I think that my lack of understanding is a good thing. Because it leaves room for me to be surprised by how God will respond. It leaves room for me to be delighted and awestruck when I see God at work in my life, in the life of our church, in the life of all God's people. So this is what I do know. God's power will not lead to worldly success and power for you. I know that a life devoted to God, the life of a disciple, will not give you rock-hard abs and the Dorito shape that is so desired. It won't give you perfect white teeth. It won't give you a full bank account. And your home won't always be clean. But when we submit our weaknesses to God, we will be surprised and delighted by how he responds. We serve a God who meets us in our time of need. He meets us in our weakness. He meets us in the operating room, on our deathbed. He meets us in the fertility clinic or the AA meeting. He meets us in our pain and in our lack. I want to leave you with a quote from a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He did a lot of things. Um, he's a theologian. And he suffered a lot. He was a Lutheran pastor in Germany. And he spoke out against the Nazis and against their persecution of Jewish people. And in 1945, just as the war was ending, he was tried and executed for being part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. But he's written a lot, and I found this quote that he wrote about, about suffering. He said that we must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or omit to do, and more in the light of what they suffer. We must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or omit to do, and more in the light of what they suffer.
And I wonder how our community might change if we started to have conversations like that. If instead of asking, how is work? Or how's your family, we said, how have you suffered this week? How have you struggled? What is your weakness? Maybe it would be depressing, but more likely, we would start to see people in a different light. We would see them in light of their weaknesses, yes, but in light of the grace that God is pouring down on their lives. The grace that God is pouring down on each one of us. So this is the perfection that we should be after. The perfected power of God, evident in the grace we see day by day. Let's pray together. Holy and awesome God, God who created the vast universe, but also created us with our intricacies. God, we ask that you would make your power perfect through our weaknesses. We ask this by the power of your spirit. Amen.